Yom HaShoah is coming up soon. We're going to discuss tonight and next week we'll continue discussing a, a terrible question that has come up too many times in our people's history. There are some famous versions that occurred in the Holocaust, but of course this type of question occurred much earlier as well, and that is when the enemy, enemy government, enemy bandits, when they are planning on injuring, murdering, oppressing a number of Jews, and they have a quota. They don't want to do it to all the Jews, but they want, but they want to do it to 10 Jews or 100 Jews, either <coughs> maliciously or they, have, uh, they need slave labor, they need 10 people's work or 100 people's work. They don't particularly care who, they just, they just want to make their quota. And you would rather that it not be you. Uh, you, you. Maybe you care about your fellow Jews as well, but if it's going to be somebody, you'd rather it be somebody else and not you, or not somebody close to you, not your child, not, not your friend, not your relative. Do you have the right to use your influence with the enemy, whether it's favors owed, whether it's cash and bribes you're going to pay now, do you have the right to use your influence with the oppressor, with the enemy, to get him to take somebody else, and not you, or not those you care about? Uh, again, the, the, the assumption is the enemy has a fixed quota. They're going, to be, they're going to be imposing this on a set number of people. So regardless of what you do, at the end of the day, the, the sum total of oppression, of, of injury, is, gonna, is going to be constant. But by you acting, you're going to shift the, who it's going to be away from you, away from those you care about, and implicitly onto somebody else. You're not, you're not actually going to necessarily going to give somebody else in your stead. You're not going to actually turn anybody over to the enemy. But you're going to say, here's a, here's $1,000, uh, not me. And you know that that inevitably means that it will be somebody else. So next week, perhaps, we'll discuss a version of this that occurred in the Holocaust, this week we'll discuss two classic chuvas on this topic. One is by the great Svardik Posek of the 16th century, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Leif. The other by one of the great Ashkenazic Poskim of the 19th century, Rabbi Shmuel Landau, the son of Rabbi Cheska Landau. The father was the author of the Nod Behuda. The son was a great Talmud Chacham in his own right as well, the author of the Shivastian. And he has a chuva on this topic as well. The, the Maria, Maria Ben Leib we've encountered before. He's perhaps not as well known as he might be outside, uh, outside, uh, outside Talmud scholars and students of, of halacha, but he was one of the towering Svardik poskim of the 16th century. The Chida has a... The Chida re- recounts a tradition that in the time of the Shulchan Aruch, the Rabbi Yosef Karo, there were actually three towering Talmud HaChemim, all named Yosef, who all were of the caliber that they could have written a Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Leiv, and the third one, I believe, was Rabbi Yosef Taitatzak. Uh, it, 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 the, Rabbi Yosef Karo merited to be the one to do it, I believe, he says, because of his great uh, personal character of humility, but they were all great Talmud HaChemim. He also tells a story that Rabbi Yosef Ibn Leiv was a little skeptical initially when, they, when the Shulchan Aruch first published his Beis Yosef. He thought it was maybe for lesser Talmudic scholars, people who needed assistance of reference work, secondary literature. He, he apparently felt that a, that a true Talmud Chacham 
should know all the Gemaras and know all the sources on his own. And, uh, and, and, he, and, and he kind of dismissed the, the Shulchan Aruch as being a crutch, as being uh, something perhaps for weak students, but not something that a first-rate Torah scholar needed, until the story is, until the story goes, that they were once learning, he and his students were, were studying a section of the Torah, and they encountered a, a law that they couldn't uh, place the source, they, 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 they had trouble putting it into context, Finally, someone said, let's get the Beis Yosef, and they saw the Beis Yosef uh, gave the background and provided them the information they were lacking, and he realized that he was being too dismissive, that the Beis Yosef was indeed a valuable work. But these are just anecdotes. The, the, Mar- the Maria ben Leib, the, the author of the Sheil Sechuvah's Maria ben Leib, was one of the great, great Talmudic Chachamim of, of, of Svardik Turkey of the 16th century, and his, his farm, particularly on areas of Chosh and Mishpat, were one of the great classics of the, of the golden age of Svardik Halacha between the 16th and 18th century or so. His, uh, his, his, his Maria ben Leib is one of the, the pillars, one of the foundations of, uh, of the Halacha of the early Achron. He discusses the following case. His case is not actually as grim as some of the other cases. It wasn't uh, necessarily a matter of life and death, although he argues that death was potentially involved. His case was basically an issue of some kind of forced labor and taxation. The way he tells the question is, Ruvain was on friendly, on intimate terms with uh, the aristocrats, with advisors to the government. He had friends in high places, as they say. He, was, he had influence with uh, important people. And Lepamim, sometimes the government, the government of Turkey presumably, they would sometimes seize certain rich Jews and they would uh, assess them with uh, not clear exactly what it was. He uses a foreign word, which I don't know how to translate, serapish, serapis, some kind of tax or levy or forced labor. If they were rich people, it sounds from part of the tshuva, it was, it was money that was involved. But it was the, occasionally these people were assessed uh, onerous duties to the government, which were unpleasant and which nobody wanted to have to do with. Why the government didn't assess this evenly across the populace, I have no idea. But somehow the government would assess a certain number of people. The government would say, we need $10,000. You, 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 the ten of you, you reach, you reach on the hook for $1,000. So this, this Jew, this Ruvain, he has, again, Ave Masarim. He has, he, he's on friend, friendly terms with important people. He himself wasn't what didn't have the problem in the first place, but, but he himself was able to save someone he knows, a friend of his, let's say, from this, uh, from this uh, unfortunate uh, assessment. However, he's concerned whether ethically it's the right thing to do. Yari Lenafsho, he's, he's concerned this is the wrong thing to do, because if he saves Shimon, if, if, if he puts in a word and gets Shimon uh, let off the hook, they still have their quota. So if, if Ruvain exerts his influence on behalf of Shimon, they'll just take Levi instead. So man He invokes a famous Talmudic expression, one of the most famous Talmudic aphorisms. Who says his blood is, is redder, maybe his blood is redder. You want to save Shimon, but that's going to come at the expense of Levi. Who said that Shimon is worthier, is redder blood, is more worthy of being saved than Levi? Who, who asked you to interfere? It's a zero-sum game. The government is going to take uh, whoever a certain number of people anyway. So who said that you have the right to save somebody 
if if a if if a direct consequence of that is that the burden will fall on somebody else. So we asked the Shiloh. So Ruvain asked, do I have the right to save Shimon if, in, if the end result will be a zero-sum game, they'll just take somebody else, I'll have gotten off Shimon, but at the expense of Levi, at the price of Levi. So what's the halacha? So Ibn Lev brings a, a fascinating raya from, a, from an Agatha to Gemara and Yuvamas. The Shach says this is an absolutely compelling raya, we, we sometimes have a rule that we don't bring proofs from Divrei Agada, from non-halachic passages, but in this case, the Shach likes this proof very much. Ibn Lev likes this proof. It's, uh, it's a remarkable Gemara. The, Gemara. the Gemara is talking about one of the grimmest, most uh, saddest stories in Tanakh, in the, story of, uh, the story of David and the, ten, and the seven sons of Shol. It's uh, the story of the Givonim. At the end of Sefer Shmuel, it says if there was a terrible famine, and David asked Hashem, why is this happening? And he says it's because of sins that Shoal committed against the Givonim. What the sins were, not entirely clear, but Shoal did something terrible to the Givonim, and now the, there was a blood debt the Jews had to, to the Givonim. The, the Givonim were a tribe of people who had become converts under, uh, under mendacious uh, terms, but they, but they grudgingly were accepted, and Shoal had somehow abused them, mistreated them, directly or indirectly, and now God was avenging his, his, his offense against the Givonim by bringing a terrible famine to the Jewish people. So David approached the Givonim, and he said, what do you want? How can we appease you? So they said, we don't want gold, we don't want silver, we want only blood. We will not be satisfied unless we have blood vengeance against Shoal's family. Shoal himself was dead at this point, but we want blood of Shoal's family. So David went ahead and executed seven members of Shoal's family as, as a payment, uh, as, a blood, uh, as a payment of a blood debt to the Givonim, and then he said that the Givonim are now going to be cast out of Israel because they have such, they're, they're, they're so cruel and unyielding, they lack the basic, basic milk of human kindness that marks a Jew. Jews are Rachmanim, Baishanim, if you don't have the basic mitos of Jewishness, you demand it, I have to pay it, but, uh, you, but we, we want nothing to do with you. So he killed, he executed seven members of Shoal's family. So there's a tremendous debate among the commentaries whether they were actually guilty of whatever Shoal had done wrong or not. Some commentaries learned they were guilty, uh, they, they, they had been complicit in Shoal's crimes. Other commentaries learned they were actually innocent, and David killed innocent people, to appease the Givonim, the Talmud seems to understand this way. How could he do that? The Talmud says, "Since when do we kill, do we kill people for the sins of the fathers?" So the Talmud says something incredible. It says that uh, better that uh, a law in the Torah be uprooted, the law that says "la yimsu avos al banim, banim la yimsu al avos," that we don't that we don't kill someone for the sin for the sins of someone else. Better to uproot that law than that the Shem Shemayim should be mischal beforehesiot, and that there should be a public desecration of God's name. If the Givonim were to walk away saying the law is different for different people, that they're going to grumble that we were, we were outraged and nobody paid for it, and even though legally it was too late, Koshol was dead and his children weren't complicit, that would be a chil Hashem if the Givonim would say they got away with murder and uh, the law, the law is, is applied differently for different people and, and, and privileged people are treated differently. That would have been a chil Hashem. Better that we kill innocent people that we murder, we execute innocent people, rather than the people should say 
that there's a chil Hashem that the that, that, that people can uh, step, step all over the lowly givonim and get away with it. Okay, a theologically and ethically uh, very challenging gemara, but the the part of the gemara that we're concerned with tonight, the gemara says how did David choose how did David choose who to kill? So the pasuk says it, it, the pasuk lists who he who he killed, but it says it says that initially, it says that. Uh, it says that the how, how, how did David choose? So it says he passed he passed the, the, the various the sons of Shaul, the grandsons of Shaul. He passed he passed these sons and grandsons of Shaul passed the Aron, the Ark of the Covenant. Whichever one the Aron seized and somehow missed, somehow supernaturally grabbed, he was marked for death, and the other ones would live. <coughs> so the Gemara asked the pasuk says. David had a personal interest in keeping Mephibosheth alive, the son of Yehonasan, his great friend, and perhaps his teacher as well. But uh, it says that the it says that this that, that this Mephibosheth, it says that David kept him alive and he and he didn't kill him. But if it was just a mechanical procedure that the Aaron chose who was going to be killed, how did David have any input? It says Shalom Haviro. He, 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 he put him off to the side and said, You're you're not going past the Aaron. Yes. Um well if is the wants to know how they all passed by the Aaron if it was in the Kosha Kadashim. It's a good question. I'm not sure. There was an Aaron that went out to war with them also sometimes. I'm not sure if they actually brought people into the Kosha Kadashim where they brought the Aaron out, or this was the Aaron that wasn't always kept in the Kosha Kadashim. I'm not actually sure. It's an interesting question. So the Gemara says that, that David gave special treatment to Mephibosheth, and he, I'm not actually sure if it was Mephibosheth who was his rabbi, or Ishbosheth who was his rabbi, one of the people named Bosheth was his rabbi, but Mephibosheth was the son of his great friend Yehonasan, so he, he spared him, he didn't, he didn't, you know, he, he took him out of the line, he, did, he said everyone else had to pass through the, the machine that beeps at you, the Aron, and Mephibosheth was, sorry? So my wife thinks that uh, Mephibosheth was his rabbi. So the, he, he put him aside. He didn't pass him through the Aaron like you, know, you, 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 get, you, you get VIP treatment. You don't have to go through the security line. So the Gemara says, That's not fair. You can't do that. It has to be fair. So the Gemara says, Well, he, he actually did pass him through the line, but Bikeshel of Rachamim, David Davin for him, and the Aaron let him go. That's still not fair, the Gemara says. So the Gemara says, that David was mispalel, that the Aaron should not uh, grab him. So that everyone passed through the line, but David personally prayed that the Aaron should let him go, and Hashem listened apparently, and the Aaron did not, did not uh, get Mephibosheth. Says the Maria ben Leiv. Again, this is an Agatha Gemara, it's hard to know what to do with this. Says the Maria ben Leiv. From this we learn a, a critical halacha. He says, Mehashaminan, we see from this Gemara, that if they've already if they've already named and specified a certain individual and said, you're, you're the unlucky one, you're the one who this, bird, this governmental burden is being placed on, and then, if Reuven would then use his influence to get him uh, to be released, and then he knows he'll take somebody else, that would be Asir, like the Amara says. If the Aaron already grabbed Mephibosheth and David would say, Aaron, please let him go, that would be Asir, that would be called Masupanim, that would be uh, improper, that would be uh, unfair. However, if they... If you know there's a quota, you know the government needs 10 people, and you want to you use your powers to make sure that the, 
that, that a certain friend of yours is not one of them, that's fine. That's what David did for Mephibosheth. David, David knew that there would, there would have to be seven people who would be taken by the Aaron. David said, I don't know if he knew there were seven, he knew there was a certain number, it turned out to be seven. David, David to Hashem, please Hashem, please let the Aaron not get Mephibosheth. That's much had the Aaron already seized Mephibosheth and David would have said, please Aaron, release him, that would be problematic. But, but if David simply asked Hashem that the Aaron should not grab him in the first place, that's fine. Says the Maria ben Leib, the same thing applies in this case of the, the Sharapis. The, the Sarapis, the same thing applies with the govern, this, this onerous government uh, assessment. If the government has already named the people at once and you use your influence to get one of them released and you know the consequence will be someone else will be seized instead, that's usher. That's like Masapanim, that's problematic. But if they haven't yet decided, if they haven't yet singled out who the people are, and you use your influence to say, please, please let it not be so-and-so, that is mutter, even if, as a consequence of that, you know it'll be somebody else instead. So that is the Marie Ben-Lev's ruling, and therefore his conclusion is, halacha that if the government hasn't yet specified who they want, you are allowed to use your influence to say, please let it not be so-and-so. So that, that's, that's how the Marie, Marie Ben-Lev passes. And he says, furthermore, he says, this that I told you, that if the government already singles out who the person is, then it would be usher for you to use your influence to release him if you know that it means somebody else will be seized instead. That's only, he says, when it's vadai, when it's a certainty that they're going to take somebody else. That, that it's absolutely certain that they need their quota of ten people, and if, and if you subtract one and now it's down to nine, if it's certain they're going to they're going to take somebody else, then it would be us, or if they already singled out who they want. However, he says, in a case like ours, where you never know what's going to happen, sometimes the government changes its mind, sometimes these decrees are, are repealed or are, are watered down, so if, if this guy's in trouble now. If you get him off, maybe they'll continue and say, okay, we need somebody else instead. Maybe they won't, maybe they'll just, uh, maybe they'll just, to make do with nine. Maybe they'll, 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 they'll find some other solution. They'll cut back on the expenses or something else. If that's a possibility, he says, if that's only a suffix, he says, then we apply a different rule. We say, ain't suffix motzmi devade. We say that, let's say, Shimon is in trouble right now. Shimon is, is about to be hauled off for this tax or forced labor or whatever it is. If you get Shimon off, well, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll say, okay, we have to get Levi instead. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just say, forget about it. You know, we'll, 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 we'll work out a solution. Then we say, ain't, ain't suffolk, the suffolk that maybe Levi will get in trouble, ain't suffolk motzmi de vadai, we, we have to be concerned with the vadai danger Shimon is in right now. The, the fact that it'll, so even if Shimon's been named, we still, we, still, we still can and should exert ourselves to get him off, because the fact that Levi will, the, the possibility of Levi being taken instead is only a suffolk. So we apply a rule of ain't suffolk motzmi de vadai. And he says, again, you have to be there to fully understand the, the reality of it. He says, this, this is the way it is, he says. Hachazinan, we have seen in many cases, Rabbim Nitzolov There are many cases where people somehow got out of this uh, duty and they weren't replaced. It's not, not quite a zero-sum game. People who managed to finagle their way out by bribes, by favors, by whatever it is, by lawyers, people who managed to get themselves out weren't always immediately replaced. It's not a strictly zero-sum game. And therefore, he says, even in a case where they did single out Shimon, it's nevertheless, it is milsa de pshita, the kolhamatzalein mafsid. it is a good thing to do. Again, kolhamatzalein mafsid is not as positive as you might want. It's not, you should do it, but he says it's at least a, uh, 
a neutral thing to do. And then he goes further, Adra, mitzvah, Rabbi covered He actually does say it's a great mitzvah. That even because, again, the, he, he reiterates that, he, the, the, well, he says, he, he reiterates throughout this tshuva, even if it's just a question of money, the halacha treats uh, a money assessment as potentially a matter of life and death. Once you're in the hands of a uh, ruthless enemy, even if their initial demand is money, he brings a famous passage in the Talmud, in the laws of Moser, someone who turns over and forms on a Jew to non-Jews. The Gemara says it's literally a matter of life and death. The Gemara says, that once they, once they have somebody in their sights, even if the initial demand is money, it could end up uh, putting him in, in mortal danger. The Rush explains that uh, it's true, what they want is money, but if they don't get enough money, they're going to suspect he's hiding money, they're going to torture him to get, to get money, they're gonna, they, they, they want the money so badly that uh, and they'll stop at nothing to get it, that the Jew may end up in danger of his life. Therefore, the Maria ben Leif says that it's actually a great mitzvah to get Shimon off, even though it's, you think it's likely they'll replace him with Levi. We don't know that. It's a suffix. Shimon is right now in the crosshairs of the enemy. The hypothetical Levi may or may not end up being in danger. And therefore, even if they've already singled out Shimon, he says, in this case, well, we don't know that it'll be Levi instead. We don't know that for, for a certainty. Therefore, it's actually a great mitzvah to get Shimon off. And uh, we'll worry about Levi when, when that happens. The, the last section of the tshuva, Ibn Lev goes back and forth, and he says, we do sometimes have a principle that we say, Sheval Tasa, that we say, even when it comes to Suffolk and Vada, he says, there are certain cases where we say, better passively, Sheval Tasa, skip, skip something that is, a, that is a Vada concern, rather than actively risk the chance of a, uh, of, of a, of a Suffolk. The example he gives is Shofar and Lulav on Shabbos. What do we say? Midaraisa, you blow shofar on Shabbos. Midaraisa, you take lulav on Shabbos. <coughs> we don't do that because Chazal were afraid you might carry the shofar, you might carry the lulav. That's a shema. Maybe somebody, maybe somebody will carry. We're giving up vaday the mitzvah of shofar and lulav. Chazal decided it was worth giving up for a certainty the mitzvah of shofar and lulav because of a suffix, Because maybe somebody will come to to violate Shabbos. So we see that even though it's that, that even though it's a vaday and suffix, since it's b'shev al tasa, we say better better give up vaday b'shev al tasa a mitzvah in order to avoid suffix doing that error become vase. So here also maybe we should say maybe we should say we should give up vaday the chance to save Shimon at the expense of become vase of actively interfering, intervening, and b'shevik getting Shimon in trouble. Just like we, we, we don't blow the shofar because we're worried maybe we'll be Mechal Shabbos, we don't take Lulav because we're worried maybe we'll be Mechal Shabbos, maybe we shouldn't save Shimon because maybe we'll get Levi in trouble. Maybe that should be the, the calculus here. Says Ibn Lev, no. Says Ibn Lev, the reason Chazal made this calculus with regard to shofar and Lulav is because Shabbos is a very, very serious affair. Shabbos is, is very chomer. So even though, yes, it's only a suffix. But, but since Shabbos is such a severe prohibition, then the risk of doing Shabbos bekum vase is, uh, is, is outweighs the, 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 the problem of skipping shofar and lulav b'shev v'al tasa. However, he says, uh, however, he says that in a, case, in a case where it's not something as serious as Shabbos, in a case like ours where it's shkulim, I mean, they're both serious. Shimon's problem is serious, Reuven's problem is serious. Then he says, uh, we go back to the rule of Antonio, since the, the, the harm to Shimon and the harm to Levi is equal, and the harm to Shimon is definite and the harm to Levi is suffix, 
So if, if even even though it's become vase, we would we would prefer the suffix than the vade. We we would rather save Shimon who's vade in trouble at the risk of potentially putting putting Levi in harm's way. Shabbos and Shofar, Shabbos and Lulav is different because Shabbos is so much more serious than Lulav. Shabbos is, a, is such a weighty Avera, such a serious Avera, then the suffix of Shabbos outweighs the Vade of Lulav. But in a case where the, where, where the problem is the same for both of them, the same problem that, that's affecting Shema now may affect Levi tomorrow, but it's Vade affecting Shema now when it's only a suffix uh, that'll affect Levi tomorrow, then the Ariban Lev says, we go back to the rule that even become vase, even when it comes to actively intervening on behalf of Shimon, we do that because the risk to Levi is only Sheval Tasa, is only a Safek, and the risk to Shimon is Vada. Ibn Lev goes on, he says he's not 100% sure about this, he says, but since the, the questioner is Nachutz, is, is, is urgently needs an answer right away, and I'm ill, he says, I'm Shokhev Aleris Dvai. If not for that, I would have some sugus. I would investigate further, he says. He mentions briefly a Gemara that talks about this idea of Sheval Tasa. But he says that the, even if we'll argue that, well, I'm wrong, even if we'll argue that, even if we'll argue that Shema and Vadai are similar, that, 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 that we don't say anything about Smidei Vadai, he says, that, that, nevertheless, he says, it depends what kind of Shema, it depends how, how, how likely the Shema is, what degree of probability it is, he says. In our case, he says, where the chance of Levi avoiding harm is quite high. Revach v'hatzala, he says, frequently happens. Hashem helps us, he says. Gzeira vidi debatla, the, these terrible gzeiras are not always... Uh, the Mariban Levi is very optimistic, he says. It's true, it's dangerous, but it often uh, doesn't come to pass. Therefore, he says, if, if, if the danger to Shimon is clear and present and 100% certain, and the danger of Levi is, is only... Uh, maybe he's only 50%, is it, or, or even less than 50%, he says... Then he says, he says he, he strongly he, he he's he's convinced that the the, the correct thing to do is a, a bird in the hand. He says help Shimon today. The the fact that it might get Levi into trouble tomorrow, he says that is weighed much less in halacha than the concrete danger, concrete and certain danger to Shimon today. And therefore, the correct thing to do is to exert your efforts on behalf of Shimon. And don't be put off by the fact that that may result in trouble for Levi. So just to summarize, the Marie ben Lev has two basic holdings. His first holding is that if they haven't yet decided who they're going to pick, you can certainly say, not him. You can certainly say, I want to shield somebody. I, 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 I don't want it to be him. I don't want it to be me. I don't want it to be him. That for sure you can do. It's worth pointing out, Marie Ben Leib is talking about you're not saving yourself. Dr. Cronin point out, Marie Ben Leib is telling us even when you're just really a neutral third party, you, for whatever reason you want to save somebody, you, so if they haven't yet decided, you can save somebody, even if that means somebody else will be taken in his place. If they have chosen somebody, then norm, if, if it was a certainty that if, they, that if you save him, if you release him, they'll grab somebody else, that would be usher. But the Marie Ben Leif says that that's not the case. That, that, that the case is it's only a suffix that will grab somebody else and not even, uh, not, even an overwhel- not even such a strong suffix. In that case, the Marie Ben Leif says even if they've already, even if the problem has already fallen onto Shimon, since it's only a suffix that will grab Levi instead, then the correct thing to do is a mitzvah rabbah to save Shimon even at the possible consequence, at the risk of the possible consequence of the harm being uh, transferred to Shimon, to Levi instead. So that's the shuva of the Marie Ben Leib about 450 years ago. A couple of centuries later, two, three centuries later, 
we have another very similar tshuva, which references the Meribah Leif's tshuva. That is in the Sefer Nod Behuda, as I said before, by the Nod Behuda's son, Rabbi Shmuel Landa. In the 19th century, we dealt with uh, the terrible decrees of the Cantonists, where, where, where the Russian government was demanding, would demand that the Jewish community turn over young men to serve in the Tsar's army. I think some of these tshuvas were earlier, but before those Xeris of the Cantonists, but this was apparently a problem throughout the 19th century. The government would demand Jewish boys to serve in the army. And the, 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 the terrible decree, what made it uh, infinitely worse in a certain sense, was that the government did not specify, unlike today, where they draft you by a social security number, they draft you by, by individual, the government then would, would employ a sort of collective draft. They, they would turn to a city, to a Jewish community, to a town, and say, we need 20, we need 10, we need three boys from the town. Your job to figure out how to get them, you have to provide us with a certain number of people. So this was a terrible, terrible dilemma which, which caused incredible uh, dissension and, and hatred and machlokas within the Jewish community, the community itself was put in the terrible position of having to decide whose children would be sent off to the army. The army doesn't mean like it means today, uh, Uncle Sam taking care of you, giving you uh, proper compensation and training and religious freedoms and so on. The army then, besides the problem of being cannon fodder, it was difficult to stay Jewish, it was a, it was, it was a terrible, miserable existence. And it was a terrible, terrible fate, and the, and the government had the, the, the diabolical attitude of demanding that the Jewish community itself figure out who, was, who they were going to sacrifice, who they were going to offer up to, the, to, to serve in the army. So, Rashmur Landau was asked a question about this. He says, he repeatedly says in the tshuva at the beginning, at the end, he says, it is... Very difficult to talk about uh, talk about these things. He says, "It's uh, he says Dina Nefashos." At the end, he says, "At the end of the tshuva, he says that." At the end of the tshuva, he writes that um, that Kasha Laharos Chazal said, just like it's a mitzvah to say Davar Hanishma, it's a mitzvah to say things that will be listened to. It's also a mitzvah. Sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. It's a mitzvah not to say things that won't be listened to. I'm not sure what that means. If he meant that the powerful won't listen to him. It's, hard, it's, it's a little hard to swallow that, that the rabbi shouldn't speak up because the powerful people don't want to hear what they have to say. I, I don't really understand the attitude. This, this was part of the, part of the great Chil Hashem of the whole miserable affair of the Cantonists, that, that the rabbis were sometimes accused of being on the sides of the elites, of the rich and the powerful, at the expense of the poor. So Rashua Landa was very much not like that. We'll see throughout his tshuva, he was very, very, he staunchly, st- st- he staunchly, uh, stood up for the rights of the underprivileged, but I'm not sure why he, f- he feels it's so difficult to write about this, but I guess, you know, it's easy for me to say. Uh, but, uh, but, but he felt it was, it was a difficult and sensitive topic, which obviously it was. He writes, it, it's literally Dina Nefashis, he says, who can possibly just uh, play God here and, and decide who's going to live and who's going to die? He says that certainly, this is a halacha we've discussed in the past as well, certainly the halacha is you're not allowed to actively turn over to the government, he says. Uh, if, if the government doesn't say who they want, it's one thing to say, we discussed before Ibn Leif's tshuva about, can you ask that they don't take a certain person? You're not actively turning anyone over. To actually turn people over to the government, to actually say, here, here's, here's somebody's boy, here's another boy, here are these kids, take these kids, that is certainly us. That's a halacha in Yerdea. The Gemara talks, the, the Mishnah says that, that if, the, if, if the enemy says, give us... Uh, 
give us you know, one out of ten of your number. If not, we'll kill you all. You're not allowed to do it. You have, you have to all die. If they don't, certainly, if they don't say who they want, even though they're all going to die anyway, you're, not, you're absolutely not allowed to turn people over to the enemy. That, that, that's murder. That, that's, you know, that, that, that's usher. You cannot cooperate with, with an enemy who is, uh, who is, who is uh, committing atrocities against, uh, against Jewish people. So he says that what, 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 you're, what you're certainly not allowed to do, he says, that uh, is, is to actually turn kids over. Kalvachomer, in our case, he says, where they're not saying they're, they're going to kill everyone. They're just saying that we, need, uh, that, we need, that we need 10 people. If you don't give us 10, we're going to take 10 ourselves. It sounds like the government was going to take 10. If we don't give them 10, they'll just take 10. That might have been the best solution, to just say, we're not cooperating, do, do whatever you want. But certainly, he says, to actually choose a specific child and say, here is a boy, take him, that is Pashat and it's Aser. He says, Pshita Sha'aser, Kalvachomer, Ben Benoshel, Kalvachomer, to actually cooperate, to actively cooperate and turn people over to the government, that is without, beyond any shadow of a doubt, you're not allowed to do that. So what is his Shaila? He says, what is the interesting question here? Libi Mahasis Bedavar, what I'm not sure about is, he says, is the Marie Ben Leif's question. Can a Jew make, make efforts with bribes or with uh, influence? Can a, Jew, can a Jew take steps to shield somebody from the problem? He's not going to actually turn anybody in, but, but he's going to say, I want to protect somebody. He's my relative, he's my friend. I, this boy I want, I want to keep safe. That, he says, is Marie Ben Leif's question. Jacques brings it. That once they've taken people, once they've singled out and named people that they want, nobody's allowed to get them off if that's going to mean somebody else will be taken instead. Again, Marie Ben Leif said if it's only a suffix and it's mutter, but in a case where it's vadai, then Marie Ben Leif said once they've singled people out, you're not allowed to, once, once they've singled people out, you're not allowed to, uh, to get them off if that means they'll take somebody else instead. But uh, if they haven't specified anybody, if they just said we're going to take X number of people and they haven't said whom, then, th- then you are allowed to. So in our case as well, he says, as long as, as long as the general hasn't said who he wants, he just says, I need 10, I need 10 volunteers, I need 10 uh, recruits, you'd be allowed to take steps to say, not my son, not my cousin. You'd be allowed to do that, he says. Then the Roshua Lando goes on and he says, the truth is, this basic rule... This basic idea that this distinction between, between once, once the problem has singled out somebody and once it hasn't, he said it's true, Marie Ben Leif says this, but it really goes back to a Yerushalmi, to a Yerushalmi that's brought in the Ramah. Yerushalmi talks about a case where you have a flood, you have some kind of natural disaster which is heading for your property. You would like to divert it so that, inst- that it'll, it'll, uh, it'll pass by your property, but that means it'll pass onto someone else's property. So are you, are you allowed to do that? So Yerushalmi says exactly the same distinction as Ibn Leif. He says that as long as the flood hasn't landed on anybody's property yet, you, you see it coming down the mountain, and you want to uh, set up a floodgate or a barrier which will divert the course of the flood, that's Mutter, he says, Yerushalmi says. But once the flood is in your field and you want to empty it out, then which will mean it drains into someone else's field, that's Usser. That's Mamish, he says, like the Psach of Ibn Leif. Again, we're not dealing with a sentient enemy over there, we're dealing with a flood, a uh, natural disaster, but the same basic distinction. Once the problem has landed on your shoulders, you're not allowed to shrug it off, you're not allowed to remove it, if you know that it's a zero-sum game, and it mean, you know that that means it'll end up on someone else's shoulders. Before the problem has singled out anybody, then the, you are allowed to. You are allowed to say, 
you are allowed to take action so that it won't uh, hit you, even if that inevitably means it'll hit somebody else. So he doesn't know why Ibn Lev and the Shach are bringing other, other proofs. It's an eclair Yerushalmi. So then Rabbi, Rabbi Landau says, he says, maybe the, the Chiddush of Ibn Lev, the Chiddush of Ibn Lev and the Shach is that, is that even when it's not the person himself. Yerushalmi's talking about a case where it's the person himself. The flood is heading from my field. So as long as it hasn't landed, I'm allowed to divert it, if, even though it means it'll land in someone else's field, he says. But maybe if you're a third party, and you just want to use your good offices to save a third party at the expense of another third party, maybe that's us, sir. You're neutral in this matter, so why should you get involved? That's what you see from Ribbon Lev, that, that's what you see from the story of Dovin and Mephibosheth. Even if it's not you yourself, you are le- if, if you for some reason have a preference for a certain person, even though you're not directly involved, you're still allowed to take actions as long as the disaster hasn't named you, hasn't singled out you yet, you're still allowed to take steps to avoid the disaster falling on the one you care about, even if it's a zero-sum game, and you know that that means it'll fall on someone else instead. So he goes on, he has a lengthy discussion about that sugya, about the sugya of the enemy who says, give us one, if not we'll kill all ten. He has a lengthy, lengthy discussion about this. And at the, at, at the end of it, though, he goes back to, to, to our basic case. He says, he says that, he says that he, he has one final twist. He says, there, there is a machlokas aposkim. One of the examples discussed by Chazal is a case where they want to violate a woman. And they say, give us one, if not, we'll violate everyone. So you're not allowed to do that. But according to, according to one gears in the Yushalmi, if the woman is already tzmeyev, she's already been violated, we say... It can happen again, because, uh, again, we, we have a hard time with this. We view each act of abuse as uh, an independent trauma, probably, and we wouldn't think that just because she was abused once, she, somehow she, it's less problematic for her to be abused again. But apparently some posts come hell like this, that once she was, has already been violated once, the second time is not as problematic. She's already used to it, so the... So this is, again, a difficult svara, but some posts come said that, that, that if there's a woman who's already abused once... The, the, the harm to her is not as much, so we single out her. Says Rabbi Landau, that is not relevant to us. What would have been the, the, the potential relevance? He says, you might think that if there are some kids who are not so religious, who are not so observant, they, 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 they're you know, te- kids at risk, they, they violate some mitzvahs, we don't have to worry about them being in the army because they're not so religious anyway. Says Rabbi Landau, that is absolutely not, a, not, not at all the same thing, he says, it's true, they're not so from, they, they, they don't keep all the mitzvahs properly, he says, but what you're talking about, sending them to the army is a thousand times worse. It's a kifle, kiflayim, kechochatasem. You're going to put them in the army, which is uh, terrible for their ruchnias, besides the yashmias, I guess, but just because they violate some mitzvahs today, they're, 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 that's nothing compared to what's going to happen to them in the army, he says. Furthermore, he says, just because they have a, these kids have a bad reputation, they're a little bit wild, he says, that's not, we don't know they did major Averis, you know, we, we, we haven't heard proper testimony of the Michal Shabbos, they have a bad reputation, people say these kids are, uh, these kids are wild, they, they're, they're not so uh, civilized. It's not the same thing as someone being a Russia gummer. Therefore, he says, absolutely not. Just because these kids are on the fringes, he says, just because these kids are, uh, are, less, uh, are, are less pious, She'eris Yisrael Yasu Avla Kazu, for Jews to do such a thing, to turn over these kids just because they're the religious underclass, absolutely unacceptable. He says what you could do is, he said, like we said before, 
What you could do is, if there's somebody who's particularly chashu, particularly kosher, someone particularly deserving of being saved, you could say, don't take him. Again, as long as they haven't singled out people, you can say, please, he, he's, he's, a, uh, he's a particularly uh, elite, particularly um, valuable member of our society, not him. That you can do, he says. But to actually turn over kids and say, take these kids, chas v'shalom, he says, absolutely not. Furthermore, he says, once they've, they've singled out who they want to draft, like Ibn Lev's distinction, at that point, he says, even to, even to try to get someone off, you can't do, because it's a zero-sum game. Again, Marie Ibn Lev was made kill, because in his case, he said it wasn't a zero-sum game. But if it is a zero-sum game, if you know that the draft is rigid, and if they, they need ten people, and, if you, and, and, and they've already decided we want Ruvain, and if you say, please not Ruvain, they'll say, okay, we'll take Yisachar instead. You can't do that, he says. Kasha Lahoros, you can't be making on such a thing. He echoes Ibn Lev's language again, the Gemara's language. Who said his blood is redder? Even if you think he's more of a tzaddik, he's, uh, he's more of a Talmud Chacham, he's more appealing somehow, it doesn't work like that. At a basic level, all Jews are, are precious, all Jews have red blood. So as long as they haven't singled out who they want, then there, there's basis for leniency to say, not this guy, he's especially, he's especially valuable. But once they've singled out a person, to say, not him, to do that at the expense of somebody else, that is Asr. Yadati says, I understand, the Benidon Zeh, Kasha Laharus, it's very difficult, as I mentioned earlier, it's very difficult, he says, to issue rulings on this matter. Chazal said, Kim Shemitzvah Lomar Dever Anishma, just as it's a mitzvah to say something which will be listened to, it's also a mitzvah not to say things that won't be listened to. Again, it's a question of Chil Hashem as well. There was, there was a terrible Chil Hashem. Rabbanim were being accused of uh, being hand in glove with the rich and uh, not caring about the poor. So, I, I, again, you have to be there to know what, what the context was, what Rabbanim were not being accused of, he says. But certainly, he says, I'll call upon him, whatever you want to say about this question of uh, getting somebody off. He says, certainly, he says, you are absolutely obligated to protest, to object, if, any, if they want to actually actively turn someone over to the non-Jews. That you certainly cannot do. Turning somebody over is absolutely unequivocally prohibited. The opposite, just trying to get somebody off, that, according to Ibn Lev, would depend on whether they've singled out particular individuals or not. Once they've singled out individuals, even that would be usher, even just to try to get somebody off if it's a zero-sum game. Before they've singled out who they want, like Ibn Lev, he says, it would, it, it would be mutter, he says, but uh, this whole topic, he says, is, is, is delicate and sensitive, and it is hard to, uh, hard to rule on this matter. Professor Mark Shapiro, about 15 years ago, had a, a piece discussing rabbis and communism, and he discussed, uh, he, he had various notes, various comments about these, uh, these terrible episodes in Jewish history. So he quotes, he, he quotes uh, one writer as having said that in a certain community, the communal leaders, the communal lay leaders, wanted to grab a poor tailor because he wasn't observant. The local rabbi forbade it. So again, we've seen that the Roshua Lando himself was more than a local rabbi. He, he forbade it. He was talking about a case, not somebody who wasn't observant at all, but someone who was maybe not so meticulous in his observance of mitzvahs. Someone who actually wasn't religious at all, someone who was, who was a complete parik ol, a mechal Shabbos, Rav Shmuel, Rav Shmuel Landau is not clear whether he would actually allow turning that person over. His, his primary objection to turning over the, these uh, wild kids is because they, they didn't do such serious averis, and we, we don't know for sure they did these averis, and it's going to be much worse in the army for them. But someone who actually is systematically is abandoned religion, it's not entirely clear what, what he would say. 
the Shapiro goes on and he quotes a, he quotes another uh, he quotes a uh, he quotes a rabbi that on the one hand the rabbis did try very hard to defend children of the lower class and the rabbis very much rejected the idea that lower classes should be uh, should be victimized but they would hand over the non-religious kids including their own he says the rabbis were very principled about this class is not relevant the lower classes are equally precious in God's eyes but religion the religious commitment makes all the difference if if, if a kid is not religious then he uh, he is uh, to be turned over before those who are religious and even their own kids he says they would they would turn over it's a uh, Shapiro says that uh, it's hard for him to believe that people would actually do that and he can't imagine how what it would do to the mental state of the child but uh, but be that as it may, the, that, that is the logic of, uh, of how halacha would look at this, that, that, that if someone is not religious, again, we, we distinguish between Tinoch and Ishba sometimes, and someone who's actually uh, an apicaris, is someone who's not his fault, who, who wasn't raised religious, and so on. That's a discussion we've had before about how we treat the non-religious in the modern era, but, but, but at least someone who made a conscious decision to be parik ol and not be religious, it's certainly possible some postkin would have said that if we have to turn somebody over to the army, let it be them and not those who are religious, I'll call upon him, but the primary point of Shmuel Lando is a child who basically is religious, even if he's not as uh, observant and meticulous as, as we would like, that itself, so we, we have to, he has to improve, but that itself is not enough of a reason to turn him over to the, to, to the armies of the, to, to the army of the enemy. He's a Jew, he's deserving of, uh, he, he has the rights of other Jews. The only exception is, if they haven't singled out who they want yet, and you're not actually turning him over, but you're just saying, please save so-and-so, and so-and-so is someone you feel is more worthy, that, uh, according to Ibn Lev, is mutter. But to actually turn people over is absolutely usser, and even to not turn over, even, even to just try to get somebody off, once the burden has fallen on him, and it's a zero-sum game, that, that if you roll the burden off him, it's going to roll onto somebody else, that, both Ibn Lev and the Shmuel Lando say is usser, both based on, both based on the the story of Mephibosheth and David, and the Gemara about that, as well as the Yushalmi that says, once the flood has landed in your field, you're not allowed to relieve yourself of the problem if that, if that will necessarily imply that the problem will become someone else's problem. Thank you all so much for listening. So next week, again, we'll discuss further chuvas on this topic, uh, including, one, uh, one, one, including at least one story about the Holocaust.